0: Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling in the spirits. So I call out first to the ancestors to be with us here today. I call out to those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines to us. I call out to those ancestors of the people The ancestors of the plants and the ancestors of the land itself, I call out to the mountains, the mountain ranges, the coasts of the great oceans, the deep, deep flowing rivers, the great lakes and aquifers, all of these ancestral energies that were here, the land before people, and will be here long after. I call out to these ancestors, the many ancestors who have lived well and lived together, and I ask them to gather with us The ancestors of the land, the ancestors of the plants and the animals and the bugs and the ancestors of the people to gather around us here today that we might be held well in this um, conversation. So I call out to the ancestors of those who are listening now and those who will to all of you that we must gather around and know that this is a time, a critical time for the human family. And we are one family and these ancestors are our ancestors. And so I call out to them to be with us here today, that we might know on whose shoulders we stand, that we, we might be helped. As we go forward, and that we might be able to do precisely what we are here to do as the living, so that all that needs to be here for those who are coming is here, ready, willing, and able for their lives to flourish and to be abundant and to be joyful. We call out to these ancestors to gather around us here today. And from our hearts, we focus in from our hearts to our bellies and our bellies down into all the layers of the earth, to the very center of the earth. And take a moment from your heart to offer to the earth gratitude, gratitude for your life. Gratitude for this day, gratitude for the incredible beauty and the great diversity of life, and all the challenges ahead that will make you the person who is able to live your soul's purpose. So we call out to the earth for the wonder of her dreaming and give thanks, for this is what brought life to the face of this planet, and we ask her to help us to be better dreamers. So we give thanks to the energy of the earth and draw this energy up into our bodies, calling into our day, calling into ourselves, calling into these proceedings, the energy of place and home and belonging, the energy of grounding and connectedness, the energy of steadfast. The energy to be trustworthy, the energy to be dependent, a place on which we can stand. We call out to these energies and help us to extend from that place of groundedness out to feel our connection within ourselves, our connection with others with the environment, with the spirit world, our connection with all things and ultimately to feel the oneness of all things and our place in that great oneness. So we call out to earth, to the the earth and her wisdom of manifestation that we might know our place in the great design and manifest that through our actions in this day. So we draw the energy of the earth up from our bellies to our hearts and our hearts to our minds and our minds we extend out through all the layers of the sky all the way to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know this energy, name it. See yourself reflected in that image and that image reflected in yours. Know yourself in this energy and call it down. Call it down through all the layers of the sky, bringing into yourself, bringing into our proceedings, bringing into this day the energy of blessing, the energy of protection and belonging, generosity, benevolence, all of these energies that allow us in our life to trust and to reach out and find the mentors, the champions, the guides, and the teachers along the way that help us to do what we have been called to do. So we draw this sky energy down into the head, the heart, and the belly, and take a moment inside your being to feel that beautiful dance, that connection of the, bi- the big love of the earth and sky coming together within and the yin-yang dance of energies within you. And in this energy, we call out to the spirit of the heart to awaken and be with us here today and open. To open to be that amazing crucible that has the ability to hold the fiery passions of our bellies and the crystal clarity of our mind together in such a way that they are able to give birth to that third and most essential energy, the knowing of your soul's true purpose. And may you find in your heart the courage to bring that purpose into manifestation today in some way. And so we give thanks for the presence of the helping spirits around us, the earth below, the sky above, and the heart in the center of it all. And we give thanks to those of you who helped keep the show alive and on the air and in the archives and available to those free Anyone who has access to a computer. So it's not completely free, but about as free as it gets. So we give thanks to Indrek and Sarah and Mary and all of those listeners who have been able to donate financially to keep the show alive and well and vital. If this show is meaningful to you in any way, that means you've been moved in the heart. Even if you're moved into profound irritation and frustration, you have been moved. And if you are moved in the heart by the show, I ask you to allow your heart to move you into action. It is the most fundamental of shamanic acts to let your heart motivate your actions in the world. And I ask you to do something. Donating is easy. You can go to whyshamanismnow.com, click the support button, and donate any amount you want. If you get lost and you end up in my site, click the radio show banner, and it will take you to the radio show site. You can leave any amount, large or small, in any denomination. We take it all and use it precisely to keep the show on the air, to pay the bills. And for those of you that are not able to do that, I ask you to continue to do whatever you can to keep the show alive, vital and well with your questions, with your discussions and your own shamanic life in the way that you bring these teachings into the world. Whatever it is that you do, I ask you to do something so that the energy keeps moving and circling and flowing and growing in the world. So thank you all for all the many, many things, large and small, that you are doing to keep the show alive and vital and well. And I give thanks for our guest today. Dr. Hilary S. Webb. Hilary, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be talking to you again.
0: Yeah, and congratulations on your new um, title.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this um this book, Yanantin and Masintin in the Andean World: Complementary Dualism in Modern Peru, is something, you know, very close to my heart and sort of reflects a lot of the work that I did during graduate school looking into this concept of Yanantin or complementary opposites in the as the sort of basis of the indigenous Andean worldview. And um Boy, it was such a wonderful adventure for me and sort of gave me some wonderful learnings and gifts. And so it's just a pleasure to be able to speak about it. So thank you.
0: So for those of you who um, are living under a rock, Hillary is talking about her new book. <laughs> and, you, and as you know, I, all uh, of you who listen regularly, you know that I think that most people that write about shamanism do not do a very good job because they simply don't get it. And that's a problem because, of course, we read those books and we continue to not get it. And so don't email me and ask me who those people are because I'm going to tell you. What I will do on this show is bring on the show people, I think, who write beautifully about shamanism. And Hillary is one of those people. And Hillary has been writing beautifully about shamanism for actually many, many, many years. So this is a a knowing that I believe is just innate in her true nature. (laughs) And so – new book which we'll talk today she also has two lovely older books one is called exploring shamanism using ancient rites to discover the unlimited healing powers of the cosmos and consciousness and traveling between the worlds conversations with contemporary shamans and um, so these are all available on hillary's website or through hillary's website at least which is hillary dot two l's and two b's h-i-l-l-a-r-y-s as in not sam i'm sure it's probably <laughs> shamanism <laughs> uh web, webb Dot com. And you can also email her at Hillary at HillarySWeb.com. com. Um, let's see. So we are live today, everyone. You are welcome to call if you would like. The number is 527721938. You can Skype in from the codash creator network.com site by clicking on the little Skype button, or you can email me at Christina at um, lastmasscenter.org, and I would be happy to read your question on the air. Um, so, without further ado, here, oh, and if you have questions after, just feel free to email after not obviously not going to end up on the show, and I would be happy also to forward any emails to hillary if i can 't answer them so, Hillary, as you reflect on your life, um, what do you think are the truly pivotal moments in your life that brought you to explore the kinds of things you you 've been exploring in your writing, which is also really an extension of your life. So what what set you in that direction?
1: Yeah, let's see some highlights. Well, um, you know, I think I just came into this world with uh, with a curiosity about the mysteries and wanting to kind of roll around in the mystery and see what I could find beyond what consensus culture, you know, expresses to us and explains to us. And I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, which, as people might know, is the uh, site of the historic uh, witch trials of the this- 17th century, and today is sort of a mecca for alternative religions and spiritualities. So, growing up there, I just found myself with this whole area of knowledge that I could able I could you know poke around into. And I remember as a kid going into some of the witch stores and checking out some of the books, and and um, really just being fascinated by how can we look at the world differently, and what is there beyond what we typically consider to be the world. Um, and how do we get there? So, you know, I had an interest in, religious, in religion and philosophy for a long time. And then in my mid-20s, I ran into somebody who introduced me to shamanism. And for me, shamanism was really this profound uh, process. And it had this set of tools and techniques that enables us to go into altered states of consciousness and explore the world in a, in a new way. And for me, that was just really um, exciting and offered me some very paradigm-shattering experiences. I talk about in traveling between the worlds. I talk about uh, an experience I had going into a shamanic journey in the woods and in this journey going through this path and to the end of the path and finding a, a seashell. And then when I physically actually did then go down this path and found this seashell, in reality, I thought, my goodness, you know, we really do have... Um, many more capabilities for exploring our world and our existence than we ever think possible, so at that point, I was hooked, and I spent a lot of time researching and reading and taking workshops and um, you know like you your radio show says why shamanism um, it has been really a profound question for me what can we how can we um, bring these into our daily lives these teachings in order to be happier people and to um, enjoy ourselves more, to have better relationships, and so on and so forth. And, you know, as I was researching different shamanic cultures, one of the things I noticed that there really is this sense of complementarity within the shamanic worldview in general, using the term shamanism as an umbrella term. And that really fascinated for me because, to me, it seems that the Western culture often brings in these antagonisms so between male and female, dark and light, inner and outer, you know, one always seems to have to destroy the other in order to exist. And it's this battle mentality, whereas the shamanic traditions tend to look at the world through the lens of the dance. So this is really when I got to the point in my graduate work that it was time for me to do my PhD research, I really wanted to explore this idea of what is the difference between looking at the world through this battle mentality that the Western world tends to um, go at it from, and how does your perception change when you're looking at it as a dance instead? So at this point, I did my research down in Peru, studying this concept of yin-nineteen or complementary opposites, and had some really wonderful life-changing experiences in which I was able to make the shift or make some shifts from a more Western perception to this more complementary perception of the world. And that was a real gift for me and a real um, profound experience.
0: So Stanley um, Krippner says about your book that it recounts the compelling scholarly and personal odyssey of Dr. Hilary Webb, an anthropologist who came to understand the Andean complementary worldview as a sophisticated and practical philosophical model, and in doing so, was transformed both personally and professionally. And many readers of this book will no doubt be transformed as well. So do you agree with Stanley? Do you feel that you were transformed both personally and professionally?
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, one of the stories I often tell is, you know, when I first started my research, my Ph.D. research down in Peru, you know, despite the fact that I'd had a lot of shamanic practice myself, um, you know, I went in very much in that sort of Western scholarly linear mindset. And so, um, you know, when I first met with Amado, who's one of my primary research participants, who I worked with, he's a young shaman who I worked with for, you know, a lot of my research, you know, I sat down with him and I opened up my notebook and I pulled out my pen and I said, okay, how do you define Anantin? And he kind of smiled at me and he and he said, you know, out of respect, I won't define Anantin. You need to have an experience of it yourself. May I suggest that you download that information from the cosmos? And so, you know, being in this sort of uh, graduate student mentality where I really felt like, okay, I've got to get some linear facts and figures about uh, this particular cultural phenomenon, I thought, okay, what, what does that even mean? And Basically, uh, like I said, he wanted me to have an experience of it. So what happened was that my Ph.D. dissertation moved from being this sort of very straightforward ethnography in which I was going to you know, outline a series of cultural terms and you know, be fairly um, academic about it. it. My dissertation ended up being an autoethnography in which I do have those more sort of traditional academic facts and figures but I also brought in many of the stories of how this personally touched me and changed me both as an academic in the sense of it showed me how we really, be having a first-person experience of a cultural phenomenon is really a wonderful way into it. I think in a lot of ways the history of anthropology and, and many of the social sciences has been you need to separate yourself from the thing that you study. So in terms of my academic work, it really did show me what kind of information you can get from being part of it and how the sort of bouncing back and forth between these cultural worldviews opens up this whole new area of knowledge, which is just a wonderful sharing of information. And then as a person, you know, the way they explained to me and the way we explored this idea of Yanantin and moving from an antagonistic worldview to a more complementary dance-like worldview, you know, it... As a person, we, they sort of outlined this model for how this happens. And as a person, I brought that back with me to my own culture. And in my daily life, I'm able to bring these teachings and live, I think, in, in a uh, much more existentially useful, I don't know if that's a word, but um, it has definitely very much benefited my life. And it's, so it's definitely hit me in both my daily life and my professional life
0: you know in the in the beginning of the book i think technically it's the introduction you do spend you know quite a lot not quite a lot of time you love in a lovely way you lay out your argument for why you're choosing to um step away from the more traditional approach and go into this um, more experiential approach, which sort of means, oh, my God, she's going native, you know. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but it also, you know, the other thing about it, though, is it, is it speaks to, um, you know, respecting and being, being willing to stand up for the idea that there are different ways of knowing and you know that, that like you said there're certain things you can know by approaching it in in a more traditional academic anthropo- anthropological perspective but there're other there're things we can't know approaching it that way and then there there are other things we can only know if we if we um sort of become one with it basically especially in these realms of the heart and the mind and you know it's one thing if you were you know doing research on large farm machines. <laughs> you could probably <laughs> stay, you know, objective about that. But, you know, so what, what did you, I mean, are there things in your book you feel that you simply could not have ever been able to share without coming into this more shamanic way of knowing things?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think most of the book, I, the book could not have been written in the way that it was, and perhaps not even at all, had I not come into it uh in an experiential way because you know although i do have i, I try to weave the personal and the intellectual together much of it is that prefer- personal journey that i went through because for me this this work that they they shared with me these ideas are very important and i think that through the heart you know and through personal experience is the best way to share it with us
0: So we just um, lost Hillary. there. We'll come back to this question about different ways of knowing. Uh, But this is one of the things that I think has really challenged writing about shamanism is that, and and frankly, any work about in alternate states of being, is there so much human beings can know by being willing to experience alternate states of being and, um, and, and yet, we live in a culture that that looks very askance at at the at accessing alternate states of being. And then, at the same side, the pendulum has swung the other way at this particular time, where people are entering alternate states of being just for. um you know, psychological tourism. And and it's important to recognize that those alternate states of being are there because there are other energies that are willing uh, to communicate with us and to help us. And that we need to be very respectful about um, alternate states of being. So... I think those people that have kind of an innate understanding of that and a respect for that are people who write well about shamanism. Now, the other thing about Hillary, for those of you that have never read any of her books, Hillary simply writes exceptionally well, period. And that is part of the beauty of reading her books is just experiencing um, someone who writes well, whatever story she's telling, it's told beautifully and gracefully. Um, So that's lovely. But with that, there is the fact that she writes well, but also the fact that she writes well about shamanism. So, um, so Hilary, you're back? Yeah, I am back. I am back. Okay. The spirits has talk- spoken. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're talking about ways of knowing. <laughs> ways of
1: knowing, indeed. Yeah, so I was talking about, you know, just some of the experiences that I had traveling around with the shamans, because those are really the, the folks that kind of uh, work with these ideas, these philosophical ideas that are very sort of conscious, Uh, level and uh, asking them basically the things that were important to me in my life like uh, how male-female romantic relationships work in their in their view and how you know because in our culture we tend not to have any kind of um, not a lot of training in terms of how do we get our similar yet different energies to kind of mesh and and dance together um, so you know that was something that was important to me, and and talking with uh, one of the shaman's grandfathers, who was his main teacher, died during um, our research, and you know, seeing his perception of death and laughing and crying together and having this very emotional experience of this dance was really um, the book could not could have been could not have been written without that emotional experience, and you know, like you said before, I think there are definitely things that are best studied using a very objective approach, and there are some things that really require this coming together of worlds. And, um, you know, one of the things I find interesting in terms of the indigenous Peruvian worldview is that in Quechua, the, the language, the native language, there are two ways of coming, of saying the word to know. One way is... To express, let's say, historical information, information that you've not experienced firsthand, hearsay, um, mythological stories, that kind of thing. So there's the way of knowing that comes secondhand. And then there is another word for to know, and that is uh, a way of expressing things that you have had a firsthand experience with. So as I was doing this research, it really became very apparent to me that I likewise needed to bring together those two ways of knowing and to somehow bring them together in a kind of a synthesis in which one would inform the other. So you've got head and heart kind of working all together at once. So that dichotomy and that duality of mind and spirit could come together. And that was uh, challenging in some ways, but, but such a fun and creative process that I really enjoyed doing. And it was meaningful for me as a writer and as a um, a researcher
0: so um one of the other things you do really beautifully, I think in the beginning of the book um in the introduction again is is to frame the this dynamic or this uh, uh tension between um Neurotic one-sidedness, and 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 quoting the um, the Times article, what makes us moral? I mean, you really laid it out very succinctly and very beautifully, and I think that that's really important because everyone feels the way that they think about things is normal, and they don't think about how, most people don't think about how they think about things. <laughs> you know? yes, exactly. And, and you really laid that out so beautifully. I think for, for someone who might never have realized that they do think about dualisms and paradoxes as battles. So I was wondering if you could sort of recreate those um, you know, that, that perspective that, and which, which has some certain, like you were pointing out some support in our society that, that this is a battle and it's the very human condition that it is this great battle.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'll do, you know, you bring up the time magazine article and that, in a lot of ways, was sort of a jumping-off place for the research that I did, because I read this article right before I really got full into my research. And, and it's from um, a 2007 Time magazine issue, and uh, the article is entitled, What Makes Us Moral? And here's the passage that really struck me as being very uh, reminiscent and representative of the Western mentality. And it goes like this. If the entire human species were were a single individual, that person would long ago have been declared mad. The insanity would not lie in the anger and darkness of the human mind, though it can be a black and raging place indeed. And certainly, it wouldn't lie in the transcendent goodness of the mind, one so sublime we folded into a larger soul. The madness would lie instead in the fact that both of these qualities, the savage and the splendid, can exist in one creature, one person, often in one instant. So to me, the way I read this this passage is there's this conception um, in the Western mindset that it doesn't really matter what we choose, either the splendid or the savage, as long as we align ourselves thoroughly and completely with one side or the other and do not deviate from that. So it's this choosing. You have to either be splendid or savage, nothing in between, no mix. We tend to have a uh, hard time with complexity. Uh, you know, both in terms of our sciences and our spiritual traditions, there tends to be this desire to reduce the world to one thing or the other, to consider one thing more real, to be to consider one thing um, more uh, benevolent than the other, and to me, that's kind of where this battle battle mentality comes in—is that desire to reduce complexity. And you know, that was sort of you know I lay out a lot in my my book at the very beginning about you know looking at the the history of Western philosophy and kind of how we have ended up in this place and you know showing we like you said we really there are so many things that we assumptions we make in every second of our day all of us because you know that's that's what happens you we don't you know how many of us have time to you know take apart the minutia of every thought we have well that doesn't make sense on any level but the thing I love about the work that I do, um, I'm an anthropologist, and my focus is the anthropology of consciousness, is that for me it is so much fun to go into other cultures and say, okay, how do you see the world, and uh, you know, in what ways does it differ from the way that I have typically seen the world, and kind of to bring those, expand the blinders, bring the blinders back so you can see more possibilities for engaging with the world. And in particular, for me anyway, the, the shamanic cultures are what resonate for me in terms of um, new ways of looking at the world, and both in terms of daily life, spiritual practices. You know, there's there's so many exciting conversations to be had with people from other cultures, but that's, that's kind of what gets my juices flowing, and, and for me, that's why shamanism.
0: <laughs> Well, I know that for me, you know, the most subtle place that that shows up, for example, teaching, is I'll, I'll say something, you know, something, 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 and then the immediate questions are based on the assumption that whatever the opposite of what I just said is, that I've just said that that was bad. Because Mm -hmm. I've actually, you know, I haven't said anything about the other thing, but the assumption is if I'm extolling the virtues of one, then I am by definition then making the other bad. And this is, I think, for me, this really subtle level of this assumption that it's this constant judgment of right and wrong, good and bad, and that's the battle.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing, when you are teaching or writing, sometimes it it's helpful to make sharp distinctions between one thing or the other, because in some ways, if you explain something, it's you want to take it to each to the extremes so you can show the distinctions, when really there's so many levels of gray in between there. But I agree, it's very easy to assume that if you're explaining it one way as opposed to another way that you are making a judgment about things. And so part of what you know my work with this book is like okay you know there are some there are various levels of distinctions between things and it's not necessarily a bad or a good thing although you know i can certainly fall into uh... that mindset too and i kind of bring myself back and remind myself to look at the gray areas um... you know when i was in peru i made a comment to Amato about uh... western culture and the western cultures influence on the rest of the world And I remember saying to him, you know, I I really want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget that look, because it was sort of this look of, of shock. And he said, but you are the solution. And in fact, maybe there's no problem whatsoever to begin with. And for me, it was like, oh, okay, so it's not that the Western mentality is bad and this is good, and so we should be trying to emulate this absolutely and completely, um, there's a place for both and so what is the, the third thing perhaps that we can create that brings the best of both worlds together?
0: So with that, how did they talk how did they how, how did they help you to understand the dance?
1: Well, part of it was uh, through the conversations that we had and me you know asking them a lot of questions about, things like uh, the dance of male and female, the dance of good and evil, and so on and so forth. But, you know, I referred earlier to um, a motto saying, you know, you need to download load this information from the cosmos. And as we mm-hmm. talked about that more, what he meant uh, in that particular conversation was that he wanted me to go into ceremony with the San Pedro cactus. And the San Pedro cactus is a mescaline cactus that has been used in shamanic ceremonies in the area for thousands of years. And it's part of their cultural tradition. And it's the way in which, you know, in part, they come to know the world is through going into these ceremonies and engaging with this plant spirit. So in the book, I go through a whole bunch of, uh, you know, all the mental wrangling that I went into trying to decide was this the best thing for me to do? Did I want to do it? Looking at my own fear, uh, which then sort of led into my own cultural fear of the mind. And I kind of go into a whole song and dance about, you know, how we in the West tend to look at the mind as being very brittle and that we must carefully contain it, otherwise God knows what's going to happen. But I did eventually end up going into ceremony, and it turned out to be a beautiful thing and really did offer me the opportunity to kind of go into a kind of neutral zone in which I was able to see the world differently, kind of step out of my Western assumptions and have a very profound experience of this idea of Yanantin.
0: And so in that um this this then evolved into what you referred to as the four steps. Mm-hmm. And would you would you like to share that can can you share that with us you know in on the radio? This yes, <laughs> is that going to be work? <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, I'll I'll um I can go so I can lay out the four steps and then if you'd like I could certainly do a little reading from the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um So, I've been talking about this idea of yenantine, or complementary opposites. And for me, the term yenantine is what I would call the quote unquote noun. It's the pair, it's male and female, it's inner outer, it's dark and light. And it doesn't necessarily have to be such strict divisions and such strict polarities. But we just, you know, the way I look at it, yenantine is the noun. And yenantine has a correlate term, which is masintine. And masintin to me is the verb. It is the dance that the yinantin pair go through in order to move through the tension of antagonism into complementarity. And the four stages of the masintin dance are this. The first one is tupai, that's the meeting, Tinkwi, the testing of boundaries, take, the union, and truhi, the separation. So in the book, you know, I I use this four-stage model and kind of apply it to different polarities, saying, okay, so how does this work in this situation, in this situation? And, um, yeah, it it is that um, movement from, you know, you you two-pie, you meet somebody for the first time. It's sort of the neutral time. You don't know what the relationship is going to be, but you've just stepped in front of somebody, you're looking in their eyes, and you're shaking their hand. And then the Tinkui, and that's the testing of boundaries. Um, The Tinkui takes so many different forms. It's it's a battle, it's a dance, it's the lovemaking, it's the... You know, one thing I like to stress about the Yanantin worldview is that it's not a utopian idea. It's not that everybody lives happily ever after and there are no conflicts and there's nothing. In fact... Really what it is is this idea that the tensions and the conflicts are actually part of this dance and necessary in order to move through the, the tension into a take place, which is the union, which is where the power struggle has ceased and the boundaries between one and the other have been defined. And then the final one being truhi, or the separation. And this is sort of a little more esoteric uh, an idea than some of the, the previous three, but I describe it as loving at the level of the soul. Because you have, these, you have this pair, this yin-yang pair, and eventually they will be separated, but because they have been through the four stages of the dance, they can never really be separated, even through death or uh, moving in different directions. So there's a the sense that the yin-yang pair are forever more you know, together. So I can give you a little idea of my personal experience in the, uh, the San Pedro ceremony. And uh, read you a little bit of out of Chapter 5. And, okay, it goes like this. On Friday evening, I arrived at the plaza early to rent a sleeping bag and an inflatable mat from one of the tourist centers lining the square. I felt a slight nervousness, wondering what the evening would hold, although now that I had made up my mind to do it, my nervousness was more excitement than fear. The mind is a funny thing, isn't it? I eventually spotted Amado's car and jogged across the street to meet him and Juan Luis. Amado's cousin Marco was sitting in the driver's seat with Juan Luis riding shotgun. Amado sat in the back. I barely recognized them at first. All three of them were dressed in traditional ceremonial costume, brightly colored ponchos and the warm woolen chullo hats of the Highland Andes. As their heads swung around to greet me, the pom-poms hanging down from their chullo swung in unison. Buenos tardes, princesa, they called out. Juan Luis got out of the car and helped me put my things into the back. I climbed in next to Amado, and the four of us zoomed up the mountain and out of town. Soon we were out of the city and driving through the farmlands of the valley just below Cusco. The landscape was lush and emerald green from all the rain of the past several months. In some areas, the ground had been cut open through tilling, exposing luscious blood-red soil beneath. All the colors of the land glowed against the darkening sky. We listened to a kind of Nuevo Andean zampoña music as we drove. Traditional flute music flavored with a more modern electric touch. It was a strange juxtaposition of old and new, and I liked it. Everything in that moment seemed heightened, including my own joy. I turned to Amado, who met the glow in my eyes with a smile and a hug. As we embraced, I said, Amadocito, I don't know how this happened, but I'm so glad I'm here. And I'm glad you're here, too, my sister from the north, he said, patting my hand. Later on the drive, I asked Amado, will San Pedro make me sick like ayahuasca? A powerful hallucinogenic preparation used in the Peruvian rainforest, ayahuasca is often accompanied by a violent purging process in which anything that isn't part of one's basic anatomy comes rushing out in mass exodus from both ends. No, Princesa, Juan Luis's preparation is gentle. You might feel the urge to throw up at first, but that urge will pass if you let it. He handed me a bottle of water and instructed me to drink it. Once the ceremony began, we would not be ingesting anything other than the San Pedro, and it was important not to get dehydrated. Half an hour after leaving Cusco, we reached the town of Chincheros, where Amado grew up and where much of his family still lived. It was completely dark now, and the town's narrow road was illuminated not only by the golden fluorescent glow coming from a small store tucked into a row of squat adobe buildings that lined the street. We pulled up across it, and Amado and Marco got out and ran off on some errand. As we waited, Juan Luis and I chatted. I asked him about his life, and he told me that he is currently living in the home of his teacher and mentor from whom he had learned to work with San Pedro. He had married his teacher's daughter, Claudia. The two of them had a little boy. And just to skip a little head, Marco and Amato appeared out of the darkness, carrying four large bottles of beer and an armload of firewood, all of which they piled in the back of the car. We continued up the mountain, winding our way through hair-pinned turns. I felt grateful for the darkness, which kept me blissfully ignorant of the steep drop that undoubtedly lay below us. Eventually, Marco pulled off onto a flat area next to the road. We all jumped out, grabbed our gear, and headed toward a fire pit about 50 feet away. At 13,000 feet above sea level, it was cold up there. Really, really cold. Several years earlier, while trekking in the Andes, I had spent a night on top of a glacier at an altitude about 16,000 feet. At that height, cold is no longer cold. It was the kind of cold that has gone beyond itself. A cold so cold that one's body can barely register it, kind of like when a person gets an ice cube stuck to his or her finger. Here on the mountain in Chincheros, however, the frigid air sunk deep into one's bones without that strangely comforting, so often deadly, numbness. At first I thought it was just me, that I was simply not used to these temperatures, but then I heard Juan Luis make a joke about the mountain being the freezer of Cusco. Amado and Juan Luis set about building a fire, which, once going, took the edge off the bone-piercing chill. I wrapped my sleeping bag around me and sat down by the fire, watching and waiting. The wood must have been damp, for it crackled and steamed as it burned, spitting streams of thick smoke. Between the smoke and the thin air, my lungs had to strain to get enough oxygen, and I felt as though someone was sitting on my chest. Marco saw my discomfort. Don't fight it, he said. Try to breathe through it. Eventually, three men men gathered around the fire and motioned to me to stand up. Juan Luis pulled a large plastic container out of his bag and poured some of the thick liquid into a silver cup. Whispering soft prayers under his breath, he held the cup up to the sky, then to the earth, and then poured several drops onto the ground. Pachamama always drinks first. He brought the cup to his lips and drank the contents of the cup down without stopping. Amado poured Agua Florida onto Juan Luis's palms. Juan Luis rubbed his hands together, clapped three times, then brought them up to his nose and inhaled deeply. He poured another cup of the San Pedro and handed it to Amado, who then repeated the same process. The third cup was for me. I shivered a little as Juan Luis put it in my hands. The two of us held the cup together for a few moments as Juan Luis spoke traditional prayers. And skipping ahead a little... Then he nodded at me, drink. And so I drank. The taste was not as bad as I had imagined it would be. It was bitter, yes, very bitter, but not terrible. He poured the perfume into my hands, and I did as they had done, wincing a little as the sharp alcohol scent of the perfume stung my nasal cavities. Princesa, Amado said in a low voice behind me, this is your Yanantin. And... The four of us lay down in our sleeping bag and closed our eyes, waiting for the San Pedro to take effect. Time passed. I must have fallen asleep because I was suddenly jolted awake, feeling as though I had just remembered something important, something essential even, as if a thousand dreams that I had ever had but then forgotten had returned to me all at once. There was a brief moment of awareness, and then it was gone, frustratingly gone. And then in the next moment, another sensation overcame me, one that can only be described as a simultaneous splitting and adjoining of myself. While on the one hand, I was aware of having a very strong sense of emotion, many emotions in fact, perhaps even all emotions, another part of me felt completely detached, almost clinical. It was as though I could observe my emotions in a completely objective way, while at the same time be fully subjectively saturated with feelings, ecstatic and painful and everything in between. I heard a rustling as Juan Luis got out of his own sleeping bag and came over to me. Although I hadn't moved or made a sound, he had somehow known I was awake. Later, when I asked him how he had known that I had begun the journey, he responded, San Pedro opens up a connection that is usually unconscious. That connection is always there, but often we are not conscious of it. He knelt down beside me and lowered his face to mine. What feelings are you having, Princesa? What thoughts? I struggled for words, partly for words in Spanish to explain what I was feeling, but mostly for words in any language to try and describe the sensation. Finally, I said, I'm happy and sad all at once, but I also feel nothing, nothing at all. How can that be? Juan Luis nodded as if pleased. Good, he said, that's good. There are no contradictions. That is the foundation. Everything is complementary. Being sad and being happy are states of mind. It's best to be in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. You have to look for a balance point. It's like when they take your temperature. If you are in the middle, you are fine. Try not to feel too sad or too happy. Seek peace of mind. He poured another cup of the San Pedro and handed it to me, nodding for me to drink. After doing so, I lay back in my sleeping bag, looking up at the colors of the moon. It was exquisite, light pinks and greens and golds all swirling together in a misty haze. How had I never seen this before? The sky itself was nothing less than miraculous, crystal clear like a big dome placed over me. How amazing they were, those streaks of constellations. Had I ever seen so many stars at one time? And then as I watched, the stars began to move, to dance. I closed my eyes, expecting them to be still when I opened them, but even then they continued to hop around the sky like fireflies. I was overjoyed. I felt as though I had been let in on the deepest secret of the cosmos, that the stars move when no one is watching them. And yet, at the same time that I watched them dance, seeing this unfold with my eyes wide open, there was a part of my mind that knew this was not real, that this was an illusion created by the San Pedro, that the stars do not really move. As much as I wanted them to move, as much as I wanted them to be conscious and alive and joyful, another part of me reminded myself that this could not be. But then I would look back up at them again, and they would be moving anyway, despite the insistence of that logical voice. And then I would wonder again if maybe they really do move, don't move, do move, don't move, after all. Which was real. Both seemed real, and while on the one hand I felt euphoric, at the same time I feared that my mind would split in two from the weight of the contradiction. Moving or not moving, real or not real, this tension created in my consciousness by these two opposing thoughts would stand. But then suddenly the two thoughts in their fight for dominance seemed to wear each other out. It was then that I understood. It was both. The stars both move and don't move, all at once. In that moment, I accepted fully and completely the stars' movement and non-movement as equal realities, without question or doubt, or the need to make one thing or the other. That was it, Yanantin. Captured by the vision, life took on new significance for me. It became clear how much energy and time is wasted trying to determine what was true or untrue, whether we people are wonderful or terrible, splendid or savage, or on a more personal level, whether I myself was lovable or entirely unlovable. These roles that we create for ourselves, the divine and the demonic, at what point do we stop existing as a mixture of both and become one thing or the other? It is when we are in the process of observing ourselves, of self-reflecting, of trying to figure out if we are one thing or the other and act accordingly. Yeah, so so that passage kind of highlights for me, you know, some things that we were talking about earlier. Um, this idea that we want to try and reduce ourselves to one thing or the other, to be all good, or decide that we're all bad. Um, for whatever reason, we have a very hard time accepting anything in the middle. And for me, that's the the really profound thing in this work that came for me and as part of the reason that I'm, you know, the, the work now is about bringing it out into my own culture and saying to people, okay, you know, now you've read the book or now you've heard me speak on these particular subjects, what, what is it, that, how does this resonate for you and how do you see this working in your own life and and what makes this a difficult process or an easy process? And to me that's very exciting and has offered, you know, you know just getting out there and talking to people about this idea. So I'm always amazed at the creativity and uh, the ways in which people are adapting this to their own lives. I, you know, had an environmentalist come up to me and say, okay, you know, so I get now that, you know, we can't, the two sides of the issue are never, you can't convert one to the other. But what is it that the two sides want that's the same? And in what ways can we create some sort of third option that reconciles the animosity between the two of us? Um, or having a, somebody from the UK call me up and say, you know, I'd really like to apply these ideas to leadership. How can we do that? So, um, you know, that's where I'm at these days is really having gone through this work myself, having gone through a real personal process is sort of bringing to my own culture and saying, you know, where should we go with this? You know, should we go somewhere with this? And if so, where?
0: Well, it's interesting listening. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of my clients and students, basically, because um, mo- for mo- for the most part, people um, are in one and want four. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but the first stumbling block I see with a lot of contemporary people is that they don't even have boundaries, so they can't even be tested so mm-hmm. they can't even move into that second phase and then and then should they get to there people are so either conflict resistant or or excessively into conflict that that there isn't it isn't a dynamic there isn't a dynamic tension there's no tension and mm-hmm. you know, and so i can really see how people can sit there and in their dreaming in their heart want to get to this. It's like they know it exists where they could be in this oneness. But the steps, the dang steps, you know, <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> can really see how there's, there's, um, part of it is an ignorance around energy and boundaries, but part of it is also just, um, all of these cultural ideas that, um, uh, break apart the very way that people can naturally come to these steps
1: absolutely yeah i mean a lot of this easier said than done and you know the other thing you know when i'm talking to people about these and and when they find them their resistance is coming up in some ways and kind of as you said in their heart wanting to get there but just sort of not quite being able to do so you know i i believe and from what i've experienced everybody is able to access and move through these four steps in some area of their lives. and you know i think Mm -hmm. it's just you know, adding to the complexity, for me, moving through these steps is going to be easier here and harder here and so-so here, and I'm going to have an easier, you know. So what I'll often do is say, okay, well, let's, you know, look at your life, and where do you feel like you feel very comfortable with the tension, and and you find it a creative process, and sometimes that's, they can find it in their work life, but not in their romantic life or vice versa. So Typically, I think a lot of people have a way in. It just not may not be. It may have to come in the side door, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and that's a, a basic um, kind of a basic principle. I think that people can take, and it surprises me how often people don't do that. It's like they they don't apply the lessons in that aspect of their life where they're really good to the aspects mm-hmm. of their life where they're not so <laughs> not so masterful. <laughs> um, right,
1: and again, it sort of comes down to that divisiveness, and we don't we don't often necessarily see the correlation between our work life and our love life. Let's say we don't, we see them as split and one does not inter you know, one cannot be applied to the other. So, you know, I think it's a matter of seeing how so many areas of our life can, you know, act as a model for other areas.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that for me, I, I- Well, I mean, very directly, I actually had a helping spirit that I'm not sure I really understood. I mean, I thought I understood it, but I didn't really understand it until through another roundabout way, I found a teacher that helped me experience the ideas of Taoism because I found Taoism really nearly impossible to read about. (laughs) <laughs> it's just <Yeah. laughs> it, it's not the right modality for me to try to learn those ideas and so so from a teacher who gave me experience uh, set things up for me to be able to be, to be able to experience the energies then to come back around to this teacher that I've been working with for years a shamanic teacher a uh, spirit teacher that I've been working with for years to come back and go oh that's what you <laughs> that's what you were trying to explain and the problem with it was simply that in the journey state I got it completely but I lost it here in ordinary reality, trying to translate it into everyday. And it wasn't until I had these everyday experiences of yin and yang and 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 the wholeness of Taoism that I could come back to those messages. Anyway, so my point is um, that I've really found that understanding complementary dualism has allowed me to deepen and ground a much more um, realistic and useful understanding of shamanism. I'm, I'm yeah. not really sure you can understand shamanism without complementary dualism.
1: It's true. I mean, you know, when I was doing um, the book, uh, Traveling Between the Worlds, Conversations with Contemporary Shamans, which you're in, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you actually made a wonderful statement of um, most things that are true are paradoxes. And Mm -hmm. and I remember that was one of those phrases in the book that really struck me as I was kind of, um, you know, at that point in my life, I was really trying to figure out why shamanism and what's the purpose and why put our energy into exploring this. And so the book is a compilation of interviews with a variety of teachers uh, from a variety of shamanic perspectives from around the world. And really the theme that I noticed, or a recurring theme at least, was this idea of looking the gray areas and looking at the complementary notion. And I think shamanic cultures tend to be very complementary because they're in this world view where they're, they are in the world. They are seeing the cycles of life and death and how one leads to the other. The the dry season and the rainy season and and the the steps that go in between the rainy season and the dry season. So, um, yeah, I think you're correct that in in order to understand shamanism is to understand that the complementarity and the gray areas and, and the moving between them.
0: Uh, and, and the moving between them and that these things are in relationship and that's the other piece, um, from a culture that tends towards, you know, um, codependence, dysfunction and addiction in relationship. <laughs> <You> know, <Yeah. laughs> it's really hard to see that these energies are in these healthy dynamic. I mean, the most practical one I'm dealing with right now is the fact that we did not have a cold enough winter so that now we have this huge infestation of lace wing which is killing my broccoli and my brussels sprouts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that you know this whole cycle throughout the year has uh, these dynamic tensions of this affects that and it's it's big and it's everywhere and it's reality. yeah. yeah, and absolutely. It- it isn't this or that. And and it isn't about, you know, pesticides to kill the lace wings. <laughs> you <know>, it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's about understanding the relationships of these things. And um and um I my personal feeling is we aren't gonna come to understand um with all due respect to the, the wanting to be the solution and not wanting to be the problem, I don't know that we're going to understand how to live in a different way if we can't grasp this idea and begin to live from it, mm-hmm. this, this, idea of, this experience of complementary dualism and to sink into that, to become part of nature in a sense and live in that way and not keep thinking we have this other idea that somehow is um, going to work better. Because fighting with everything doesn't work real well in the long run. Exactly. It's not sustainable. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one of the messages, frankly, that I take away from this, and I think coming from a Western perspective, it's, it sort of seems contradictory, but, but I believe that it isn't, is that by looking at the world through this lens of Yanantine and Masintine um, and the, the beauty that is that comes from uh, the tension of opposites and that this leads to that but also to this, is that I have a lot more. I have a lot more fun in my day-to-day life. I take things a lot less seriously, and you know, people have said to me, "Well, if you're taking things less seriously, then that doesn't that mean you're not standing up for what you believe in? Doesn't that mean you're not?" And it actually doesn't mean that. It just means you're, you know, you're you're still standing up for what you believe in. You're still following your passions. You're still trying to save the environment. You're tr- still trying to do, you know, whatever. Um, but you do it from a place of more serenity and joy and calmness. And with a recognition that um, everything has its quote-unquote positive and negative and trying to dance with those two things for the, the, you know, for the greatest good that you can and bringing mm-hmm. joy. And I really do believe that that joy is so healing both for the self and for the outside world. I mean, I, I probably could argue that a lot of the environmental crisis that we see or this and that uh, does come from this battle mentality where we are trying to, you know, it's me, me, and more me, because if it's not me, 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 then it's you, 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 and then I'm gone, and, and everybody's trying to uphold their own um, way of living because they feel like they'll die if they don't. So this joy, to me, is is kind of, in some ways, uh, I won't go so far as say answer with capital A, but it's an answer with a, a lowercase a of um, You know, just Mm -hmm. uh, letting things be as they are, and yet still part of your soul's purpose is how things are, if that makes sense. And again, Mm -hmm. sounds kind of contradictory. Um, But some of the best times that I had working in Peru was when we just, totally got silly and started to laugh. And Mm -hmm. I know there's a part where um, Amato is talking about the death of his grandfather and he starts to cry in it and, you know, we cry together. And then at the end we just burst into laughter and it's this idea of, okay, joy and laughter sort of eases that tension. It's what helps
0: you move out of that battle phase into the dance. And be in the dance. Yes. And, and as your teacher said, it's not so much about problems and solutions, Because if we understand that it's the dream coming into manifestation, we're always part of the reality coming, you know, we're dreaming, we're, we're dreamers Mm -hmm. dreaming and we're also what gets dreamt. And it's so, it's so this whole idea that there's some problem I have to solve. It's not that it's that I need to live what my heart is dreaming Mm -hmm. and, and be in that joy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and joy opens the heart, and I, I agree. I think that the heart is the place where our soul's purpose, our greatest um, power within the world to, you know, part of part of this Yanantin process, I think, for the people in the Andes is that when you come into balance with your Yanantin is when you can be the most beneficial of use um, of service to your community. And... So you know what I look for in my daily life is okay. How can I be in balance both between you know my own personal will and perhaps you know the will of uh, the divine, the other, the universal flow, and trying to find that balance? And it is a balance, Um, and and it's fun. It's fun, and the tension is partly what upholds that whole process. I you know one of the um, metaphors I often use is you watch. Two people doing a tango dance, and how beautiful that is, and how they start. Each one starts from one end of the, the dance floor, and they come together. And there's this um, tension in which you know you don't know if they're going to slap each other or if they're going to start, you know, kissing each other. And, and without that tension, the dance just doesn't exist, and the beauty of it doesn't exist. So enjoying that tension as, as um, an artistic process is kind of exciting when you start looking at it through that lens.
0: Well, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for writing the book and for having all the experiences and thanks to your teachers and thanks to the San Pedro cactus as a teacher and, uh, and the stars for dancing and not dancing. And, and for all that um, ha- allowed you to give us this gift of this, this beautiful book. And for those of you that want to go buy it immediately, if you have not already, you can go to HillarySWebb.com. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. We give thanks to the spirit of the earth below, the sky above, the ancestors gathered round, and the heart that connects it all. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week.